From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The apology took a year. A Colorado Springs school district says it's sorry after sending officers to a student's home. The 12-year-old was remote learning and playing with a toy gun. We as educators and parents, when a child makes mistakes, we teach them, take accountability for your actions, apologize when you're wrong, own up to it. So I just feel like the district should have held themselves to the same standard that we hold our children to. The boy's mother joins us. We'll also talk about the new state law passed because of her family's experience having their home treated like school property. Later, do you want to live in a congressional district where one party dominates? Or is competition better? What we need to do is have conversations with each other again. This issue is at the heart of redistricting and at the heart of purplish. I'm Francie Swidler, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. It was a 2004 Nissan Pathfinder. It was a really cool car at a certain period in time, and it has seen some things. So it was time for the car to get off the street anyway, and I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's an apology a year in the making. A school district in Colorado Springs, Wide Field 3, says it has deep regrets after sending police officers to a student's home. In August of 2020, 12-year-old Isaiah Elliott was remote learning because of the pandemic and was seen playing with what his teacher suspected was a toy gun. The case led to a new state law that spells out a family's rights when a child is distance learning. And now, this apology from the district. Isaiah's mom, Danielle, thinks it took too long. We understand that there were certain legal issues that prevented the district from releasing the apology statement. But waiting almost a year to issue an apology to a child that had already endured so much was very insincere to me. We as educators and parents, when a child makes mistakes, we teach them, take accountability for your actions, apologize when you're wrong, own up to it. So I just feel like the district should have held themselves to the same standard that we hold our children to. Um, We also feel as if the verbiage was very politically correct and careful instead of genuine and empathetic like it should have been. In my opinion, it was geared more towards gaining public acceptance rather than making amends with Isaiah and righting their wrong towards him. And I just want to make clear that even though the district has, in fact, worked hand in hand with us and improving things going forward, I don't believe that the apology statement should have been the proper platform to announce that. Um, If you read through the statement, 90 percent of the so-called apology was geared towards making themselves look good rather than making Isaiah feel better. Um, And I think in order for the apology to have been sincere, one, the individuals who are actually involved in the incident should have been the ones making the apology to Isaiah, and it would have been face-to-face directed towards Isaiah rather than in a written statement that was just handed to us in a folder during a meeting. Just to read a bit from the letter, the district deeply regrets the impact this incident had on the Elliots and apologizes to Isaiah for any embarrassment or discomfort he may have experienced. And then the letter speaks for you. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Elliot want to clearly state to the community that they have been very pleased with the district's receptiveness, honesty, and responsiveness 
in discussing this specific incident and broader issues. Did you agree to that language? That language was something that I feel they wanted us to relay to the community. Like I said, we have been working with them for almost a year now, making improvements to, you know, better the district and the cultural climate and things like that. However, I I feel like they use this apology statement as an opportunity to brag on themselves about, hey, we've been doing all these great things and the Elliots want to let everybody know how great we are. So is Isaiah still in the Widefield School District? Yes, last year we moved him to another district, but due to our jobs and our schedules, we weren't able to maintain that same distance in that same district anymore. So we did make the decision to bring him back to Widefield this year. Several things have since transpired that kind of gave us the peace of mind to make that decision. And I think it's important to note that our main priority was what's best for Isaiah and what does Isaiah want and what does Isaiah need? Because like many kids throughout this pandemic, the social and emotional toll that the pandemic took and, you know, not being able to socialize and be around his friends, that really hit him hard. Besides this incident and everything else that Mm. happened and had an impact on him, um, that social aspect of not being able to be in school with kids that he's familiar with and stuff really, really took a toll on him. So um, that was one of our main deciding factors in letting him go back to the district, um, as well as some other updates that I'd like to provide you with. Yeah, thank you for that. And I know that one big thing that changed was a state law uh, that has been called Isaiah's Law. It passed in the 2021 session of the legislature related to online student protections. And this act specifies that home, a student's private residence, is not the same as an educational institution's buildings, facilities, premises, and offering certain protections to families. Uh, when there's remote learning going on. How important do you think that law is? I think it's very important. I I think it's very critical, especially for not just other families within Colorado, but we also had other individuals reach out from other states that want to pass something similar to this law. So on a a bigger scale, you know, it, it, it was very important to us, specifically for Isaiah. If you remember back from the police recording, the cam footage, the police had threatened to charge Isaiah with interference of an educational institution for having a toy gun in the privacy of his own home, which is perfectly legal at home. So for the cops to come over and threaten to press charges for something that's legal in our own home, that was huge for us. Here's some of that body-worn camera footage. Technically, we could push the interference with the educational institution. Okay. You're a young man. How old are you? 13? 12. 12? Okay. I don't want to see you get a criminal charge for something silly. You know what I mean? So that's why we're going to document it as an informational report. Okay, I'm not going to charge you. I'm not giving you a summons, a court date, nothing like that. But I want you to understand if it happens again, I won't have that leeway to do that. Throughout our advocacy and getting this law passed and networking and talking with other people, we realized that what happened to Isaiah was just a small problem to a deeper rooted issue. Um, You know, several kids before the age of 18 are receiving criminal records or disciplinary records or suspensions and expulsions and and things like that for things that are just childlike behavior. So for us to be able to pass a law that not only protects Isaiah, but protects kids across the state and hopefully one day across the nation was huge to us because children don't need to be punished for 
childlike behavior or for things that are perfectly legal within their own homes, because those have long lasting repercussions when they try to go to college or they try to join the military or they try to get, you know, background checks for jobs later on in life. Well, Danielle, the the other reality is I don't I don't have to tell you this, but especially for people and children of color is that in encounters with law enforcement, there's also the possibility that they are shot. Yes, sir. And that is why we were so adamant in warning other parents and warning other families when this initially arose is because that was our number one concern is Isaiah could have been the next Tamir Rice, you know, being shot over having a toy in the privacy of his own home, being perceived as a threat, you know, being 12 years old, but being perceived as a threat, um, just having to go through that whole experience in Isaiah's first interaction with law enforcement, them threatening to press charges, them coming to the home, them being en route to the home when we're not there. It, it was just a very terrifying experience for all of us. And it's something that I hope no other family has to go through, especially over something as silly as, you know, a kid playing with a toy at, at home during a Zoom session, you know. Uh, Tamir Rice, who died in 2014 in Cleveland, 12-year-old. African-American boy. And I'll say that uh, as the police were dispatched to your home, you were at work, your husband was out running an errand, but was working from home. What else has changed that makes you comfortable with Isaiah back in the Widefield School District 3? Um, A few things that have changed since August of last year. Uh, The new superintendent, Kevin Duran, he has been very genuine and caring throughout our very first meeting. It's our impression, our understanding that he shares the same passion and improving the culture of the district. We really feel like with him in charge that the district's going to be in great hands. Um, The district removed all disciplinary action from Isaiah's record upon our very first meeting. They implemented mandatory cultural and sensitivity training for their staff throughout the whole district. They hired a diversity, inclusion, and equity firm to audit the district and invited us to take part in some of the focus groups and to serve on the steering committee. Um, They have since stopped the recording of all classes and children without written consent. Um, They're revising their policies in regards to the use of school resource officers. And we also reached a settlement with the district in which the district agreed to improve and continue to address issues that arise from not only online learning, but also in relation to communities of color and students with disabilities. So we are pleased with the collaboration we've been able to do with the district and being able to get this law passed and things like that. However, to go as far as saying that we're very pleased and we'd like to express that, that's probably a little stretch, um, as the statement said. Yeah, quoting from the letter there. Had you considered suing, Danielle? Um, We did. We did consider it. Fortunately, we were able to um, come to a settlement agreement to where if they did certain things that um, we wanted to push to help other families, that we would agree not to go that route. Does Isaiah still have the toy gun? Uh, Yes, sir. He still does have his toy gun. Um, In fact, when this incident kind of went viral, we had people from around the country sending Isaiah Nerf guns, custom-made dart guns, all all kind of toys. <laughs> so um, he, it's a hobby that he's definitely enjoyed. Uh, you know, we we like to have Nerf gun fights and and build forts and different things like that. You know, things that normal teenage boys like to do. So our stance hasn't changed as far as allowing him to play with them. But we are definitely we we were already careful before and not letting him take those types of toys outside the house just because of incidents like Tamir Rice and things like that, discussions Mm. that we've had to have with Isaiah ever since he were little, 
he was little, but now even more so, we've just had to really go above and beyond to ensure that, hey, if the camera's on or, you know, don't post to social media or just anything like that, we're, we're very careful, um, especially in the online environment, too, as opposed to, you know, just not letting him take him to the park and things like that. Yeah, Nerf guns got so much cooler after I became an adult. Like, yeah, they're so... Those things kind of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're powerful now. <laughs> Uh, how is he doing? And I, I want to respect his privacy, but is there anything you care to share about how this has affected him, you know, longer term? Well, he's he's definitely doing a lot better um, with being able to go back to school with his friends that he's familiar with. They all live in the neighborhood and he really missed being in person, like I'm sure many kids did. You could just tell like he's back to himself. He, he's happy. He's goofy. He comes home every day telling me new stories about his friends and what he's looking forward to. I think that he's definitely learned a lot from this experience. Like we mentioned, he's definitely had to learn some very hard life lessons, such as those that, you know, come with being a minority in America. But I'd like to think that he's also learned what it's like to stand up for what's right and stand up for what you believe in, even when, you know, the road is tough. Uh, He was able to go to the state capitol and testify in front of the House Education Committee and the state senators and representatives to help create change for other families across the state. And he was Mm -hmm. even able to stand right beside Governor Polis as he was signing Isaiah's law into effect. So that was like huge for him. Like, I think his head blew up. I don't know how big (laughs) after that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us, Danielle. Yeah, absolutely. Danielle Elliott of Colorado Springs, whose son Isaiah is now in eighth grade. In August of last year, he was home remote learning when his teacher caught a glimpse on screen of what she suspected was a toy gun. Whitefield School District 3 recently issued an apology after sending school resource officers to the family's home. By the way, we asked the superintendent for an interview, but he declined. Might police officers need great emotional intelligence? Some state leaders think so. They'd like to see more ethical decision-making as well. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry explains the goal is for cops to be more in tune with the people they serve and to better understand the stressors of their job. And if anybody has questions, this is the time to ask. This class should be interactive. I'm going to ask you Kevin Watts is a federal law enforcement officer by day and teaches at the Community College of Aurora's Police Academy at night. On an evening this summer, Watts was trying to get a room full of would-be police officers, cadets, to understand a lot of important things for when they get out on the job. But maybe the most important? Themselves. Self-esteem and self-image. If we're not feeling good about ourselves, about our job, where we are in life, if we're under a lot of stress, all these things are influencing each other and us, always. But there are things that we can do to kind of keep those things in check. When officers don't keep their stress and emotions in check, it can come at a high cost, from hostile, unwelcome interactions to outright brutality. Community College of Aurora Police Academy Director Michael Carter says he wants to groom officers to be more thoughtful. It's just asking people to be more human, to recognize why this group might feel police officers are this way, and this group might have no contact with police officers. It changes the face of law enforcement in a way that will make law enforcement better. These lessons, already underway at the community college, will likely be taken statewide within a year, if State Attorney General Phil Weiser gets his way. Weiser, whose agency is in charge of the certification of police officers, is working on the emotional intelligence and ethical decision-making training now for both new and existing officers. 
the curriculum we have today is a curriculum shaped from a generation or two ago. Weiser says policing has changed since then. It's become more difficult and, he acknowledges, more violent. So the training needs to adjust, too, both in de-escalation, but also how to think calmly in a hot moment. And so the question that we have to ask is, how do we start with a culture that looks at situations and encourages ethical and careful decision-making, not one that quickly moves towards use of force? It's important that police officers know how to use force, but it shouldn't be the primary or principal tool that they always use. That takes a mindset change. But at the same time officers are being coached to avoid violence, they're also being trained to encounter it. Put the gun down. Put the gun down, sir. Sir, put the gun down. She hasn't done anything, sir. Sir, just put At the gun down. At TI training in Jefferson County, Golden Police Officer Derek Hall is facing a virtual hostage situation. A man is in a convenience store with a gun to a woman's head. Officer Hall tries to talk him into dropping the gun. It was a terrifying few seconds and it didn't end well. The man ended up killing the woman, and then Officer Hall shot the man. I asked him afterwards whether he second-guessed himself during this training exercise. De-escalation is a valuable tool, but we shouldn't expect it to work all of the time. Just the same thing as a gun doesn't work all of the time, nor does a taser. We, that's where the balance comes in, is understanding what options we have. Todd Brown is one of the owners of the training group that runs the simulation videos. I asked him, is there harm in putting officers in scenarios where people want to shoot them all day long? Doesn't that set them up to see every single person they come in contact with as a potential threat, when the vast majority of interactions aren't actually deadly? We're very cognizant of the fact that if all we give them is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. We don't want to train them that everyone's going to shoot them because that's not the reality. The reality is, though, I can do everything correctly, but ultimately the person who decides what's going to happen next is not me. It's the subject that I'm dealing with. But officers do have a fair amount of control over their interactions with people. And a single bad encounter can ruin someone's life, which is where training for emotional intelligence comes in. Thinking about when and how to use force is a complexity faced by officers today and those who hope to join their ranks. My name is Jay Obera, O apostrophe, capital B, A-R-A. Jay Obera is a cadet at the Community College of Aurora's police training program. He's learning emotional intelligence, as well as, of course, when to use force. Obera says he's not worried about making the wrong decision on the job. He wants to be out and be proactive in the community as an officer. I'm excited to see that change and see what I can choose, I, Jay Obera, can choose to do as an officer to help my community, rather than just sit with my hands in, in my pockets until I get a call. The new training will be ready and available for new and existing officers across the state by next year. Whether these classes become required will be up to the Peace Officer Standards and Training Board. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. CDOT is expanding I-270 through Commerce City, and that means more dirt, dust, and vehicles polluting the air. The agency says it has a plan to address this, but neighbors are skeptical, as CPR's Nathaniel Miner explains. Joe Griffin with CDOT is hanging above the shoulder of Interstate 270, mounting a small box to a signpost. Down below, Gordon Pierce supervises. Pierce oversees air quality data collection for the state health department. What we're doing is putting up air monitoring sensors. Uh, this is in, going to be done in, in conjunction with a reconstruction of I-270 that's going to happen in the next few years. 
270 is a seven-mile-long corridor that cuts through the Denver metro's industrial heart. Its pavement is cracked and worn. Some of it is even sinking into a historic landfill below. And it's often congested with trucks, some carrying fuel from the nearby Suncor refinery. A thick haze hangs in the air. So CDOT has been planning for years to fix and expand this road to accommodate all that traffic. Construction is expected to take multiple years. That, and more vehicles in the long run, could make the already routinely bad air here even worse. That's why Pierce says they're installing a series of these sensors. Well, really what we want to do is find out just what is the impact of, of construction and what can be done to help mitigate the impacts during construction and then we'll also be monitoring after construction. CDOT executive Rebecca White says the agency will collect the data, consult with community members, and then act on it. It's not a situation where we get more data and we say, well, that's interesting. Um, The fact that we can look at uh, screening walls and increased vegetation and looking at transit and different ways to move people Uh, We need to know what's going on in in order to make those decisions and those investments. A new state law requires CDOT to measure and reduce air quality impacts of large construction projects. White says CDOT started trying to do that type of work during the controversial expansion of Interstate 70 in North Denver. The agency faced multiple lawsuits over pollution concerns, and residents are now living through the dusty demolition of a hulking viaduct. CDOT installed some monitors there and helped pay for new windows and air conditioning units for more than 200 nearby homes. We'd never done those type of investments before. So it kind of set a precedent for having those conversations and, and we're ready to have them on yeah. future corridors. There isn't the same organized opposition to the I-270 project, at least not yet. It doesn't go through as many neighborhoods. But bad air quality is still top of mind for nearby residents, like Juliet Romero. She says she's often stuck in traffic and understands why CDOT wants to expand the highway. But she also gets headaches on bad air days and has to keep her kids inside. It's kind of depressing. And it's just something that I feel like, you know, I don't have any control over the air. There's not really any, like, escape from bad air quality. This part of Commerce City is nearly surrounded by highways and industrial sites like the Suncor Refinery. More than half of its residents are Hispanic. The median income is about $10,000 a year, less than the Denver metro as a whole. And state health officials have documented high rates of severe asthma and other breathing problems. Maria de Zubia is a Commerce City native and a community activist. She says the state has historically done little to protect residents here. I don't feel that we've had people really looking out for us, people who should have been, really keeping an eye on our community when it came to the air quality, when it came to the water quality, when it came to, you know, the basics. Zubia works at a local health clinic and sits on the school board, but says she's speaking as a community member. She says the recent spate of wildfire smoke has given much of the Front Range just a little taste of what life is often like in Commerce City. If you can imagine that stuff all the time over your household, over your schools, over your churches, over your grandparents' home, would you be satisfied with that? Would you be happy about that? Would you say, oh, well, (laughs) they're going to put up a monitor and tell us how much is actually coming in. But what are they going to do about it? I don't know. I mean, who in their right mind would say that's okay? Zubia is glad the state is installing these monitors. What she'd really like is no highway expansion at all, but the state is set on it. And Zubia accepts that. The industry around her community, the refinery, the highways, it all helps make Colorado run. And given that, she says, the state should do everything it can to protect the community that has to live next to it. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Do you want to live in a congressional district where one political party dominates? Or is competition better? 
That's a key consideration as the state adds an eighth seat to the U.S. House. Well, the public affairs team of Benta Birkeland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kim take on that issue in the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. For a lot of people watching the redistricting process, there's one big question, a question my colleague Caitlin actually asked commission staff recently. You have more competitive seats, I would say, in this map than the previous map. Can you just talk about some of the competitive numbers? Thank you. Well, this commission has not decided what percentage of votes makes a district competitive or not. So I guess I... That is not going to stop us from talking about how competitive Colorado's next congressional map may be. And asking an even bigger question, what good is competition anyway? Now, if you've been listening, you know we're into the crunch time for redistricting. The commission is debating different maps based on different priorities. But they're all supposed to meet the same basic criteria you've heard us talk about all season. Equal number of people, compactness, communities of interest. And we're going to take a step back in this episode to focus on one criteria in particular, competitiveness. Colorado is one of only a handful of states in the country that requires competitiveness to be a factor in determining new congressional maps. The two maps the nonpartisan commission staff have proposed so far do have slightly different levels of competition. So this latest map has anywhere from one to three districts that might be considered winnable by either party. Yeah, and that, I think, depends on how you look at it. And that is a change from the first map that came out in June. That version really just had one swing district, a redrawn 7th district that would take up Jefferson and Douglas counties. Our colleague Andrew Kenny has been out on parental leave for a lot of this season. But before he left to hang out with his baby, he set out to examine this whole idea of competition and what it means for our politics. You might be wondering what exactly is redistricting and why is this happening in Colorado? I did not know what to expect when I drove up to Red Rocks Community College in Arvada to attend my very first public hearing on redistricting. I wasn't sure how many people would even show up for this kind of weird, wonky political event. But the answer, it turns out, was a lot. Something like 200 people packed into rows of chairs under the fluorescent lights, fidgeting and coughing and doing the things that you do at a really long public meeting. The vast, vast majority of them were there for the same reason. They were residents of Jefferson County, and they were worried that the redistricting process was going to divide up all these neighboring suburbs and stick them in new congressional districts with people they didn't really know. People from Lakewood got up to say they didn't want to be with Douglas County. It was just too conservative and too suburban down there. Others were worried about being grouped in with the mountain people up in the foothills. No offense. (laughs) Harvey Burns in northern Arvada wasn't happy that his area might be lumped into a new congressional district with the oil country of Weld County. Here's how he described it to me after giving his comment. How is an elected representative going to support oil and gas farming agriculture community and a very urban, suburban community. I mean, I already feel d- torn enough. And as if I were trying to elect them, I'd go, I can't represent both. I'd have to choose one or the other. And here's Cheryl Cheney after she spoke, telling me why people in these cities belong together. They know if they live in Arvada, where they do their shopping. Is that in Westminster? Is that maybe in Wheat Ridge? They know, you know, where their social connections are. And of course, the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues we heard was education. 
Dozens of speakers were upset at the prospect that the new maps might divide up school districts and cities and political voting blocks that have stuck together for a long time here. Except for this one guy. His name was Michael Fulton. And he actually liked what he saw for a very big picture reason. I guess probably January 6th, you know, you look at what happened that day. and Obviously, the country is way more polarized than it, than it has been uh, in a long time. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. And you have more far, far right and far left. And I'm kind of a centrist. But I, I think for the good of the country, we have to do something like this. All the rearranging that had other people concerned was actually appealing to Fulton because he liked the idea of having conservative Weld County, for example, mashed up with the blue suburbs. What we need to do is have conversations with each other again. And, you know, someone in a city shouldn't be, you know, disliking someone in the rural and vice versa. We, we, we need to start conversations again across America. He was hoping that by mixing and matching, maybe this redistricting process would create more competition. More swing districts where candidates have to satisfy Democrats and Republicans. And actually, that first draft map this summer, the one that the people at this meeting were talking about, it did that. It gave Congressman Ed Perlmutter a much tougher fight by adding more conservative rural voters to his district. Uh, I think they have to reach across the aisle and they have to talk to both sides, which is what America is supposed to be about. Now, the reason I'm telling you about this little debate is that it represents an issue that's really deep in the heart of redistricting. It's about a really weighty question that could play a big role in what happens next for Colorado. Is competition good for democracy? A lot of people would instinctively say yes. One of the values that often gets tossed around uh, when, when we're talking about redistricting or reforming the redistricting process is always about partisanship. Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. There's a widespread belief that the way districts are drawn is a major contributor to the increasing partisan polarization in this country and in the state. And that if we could somehow, you know, make districts more balanced, if we could make them more competitive, then that would reduce some of the partisan rancor out there and would allow the parties to get along better. It's not surprising that people are thinking and talking about that. Nationwide, the number of competitive districts has been dropping for decades at the same time that politicians and voters themselves are getting more partisan. So why not just make everything as competitive as possible? Well, it's not that simple. This is going on for lots of other reasons. Districts aren't swinging left or right just because of redistricting. This is not really gerrymandering's fault. Largely, it's voters sort of sorting themselves. Entire communities are kind of naturally getting more partisan and therefore less competitive. Increasingly, people are very mobile. Democrats choose to live near other Democrats. Republicans choose to live near other Republicans. Not necessarily for partisan reasons. It's a lot of for other lifestyle reasons, but that's simply, you know, those overlap with their partisanship. And to make things even harder for the competition lovers, competition is the last priority on the list for the new redistricting process. Competitiveness is one value, um, and that's certainly something we can apply. But we also want to make sure the districts are equal size. We also want to make sure that they're they're relatively compact and not spread out. Um, We want to protect historic communities and, and represent where people live. If you wanted to draw just competitive districts, that was the only thing you cared about you would end up really running afoul of all the other criteria. You might end up splitting up communities, for example, or drawing really funny shapes just to get to that partisan balance. And all those values are kind of at war with each other. So you can do your best to just kind of, you know, come up with the best map that tries to satisfy as many of those values as possible. But at some point, you're placing one value ahead of the other. And there's really just no way around that. One example of how those values have collided is Latino representation. 
When the first maps came out early this summer, some groups immediately started warning that they had splintered Latino voters. State Representative Adrienne Benavidez said that the commission may have been trying too hard to make politically balanced or competitive districts. And it sounded like there was a, a heavy emphasis on competitiveness in the two proposed maps. Competitiveness is the seventh criteria, and it's basically saying apply competitiveness to the extent possible, not as a primary criteria. So I am concerned about how the commissions are approaching it. In Colorado's last redistricting effort 10 years ago, the map only produced one really competitive district. It was CD6 in Aurora in Denver's southern suburbs. Aurora was a military town. It was represented by a Republican named Mike Kaufman. Of America. Mike Kaufman, son of a soldier and a soldier himself. When his district went from being safely Republican to leaning Democratic, a lot of people thought he would be gone and quick. But that's not what happened. To the African, Asian, and Hispanic communities who have welcomed me in their homes, in their businesses, and in their places of worship, I look forward to continue working with you in your journey to achieve the American dream. He seemed to adapt to his more diverse district. He spent a lot of time visiting churches and learning Spanish. He changed his stance on immigration. He criticized President Trump. Honestly, I don't care for him much. But that only worked for so long. Ultimately, he lost to a Democrat, Jason Crow, in 2018. Is this working? (laughs) We did it! Kaufman had tried to convince voters to look at this as a local race, who's the best guy for the job. But after he lost, he said that it had turned into an extension of the national battle between the parties. Competition, apparently, had its limits. So these last 10 years in CD6 kind of raise a big question. Is drawing for competition worth it? Does it actually achieve all the goals that people hope it will? The idea that we want competitive elections is so ubiquitous within academia that I can count on one hand the number of people who agree with me. Um, uh, I know them personally. That's Justin Buechler. Um, He's an associate professor at Case University. And he's actually written a book on why competition in politics isn't that great. He argues that it doesn't create this epic battle of the minds with voters carefully weighing their options. Instead, he says it tends to come down to brute partisanship. It's not a metaphor. A literal statement about what an elected official is, is an elected official is an employee hired by voters. Now, in a district that is split 50-50, what that means is you have a board of people who will decide whether or not to retain this employee, half of whom just want to fire this employee no matter what. That is an impossible employment situation. and this is. He argues that while candidates in competitive districts may try to go toward the center, it's really hard and getting harder to convince voters to disregard party lines. And research suggests that thanks to primaries, the politicians who represent swing districts aren't much more moderate than those in the safe ones anyway. On the other hand, in an uncompetitive district, well, at least more people would be represented by somebody who agrees with them. Buechler says that should be the goal. What we want is for as many people as possible to be represented by members of Congress who share their partisan and ideological beliefs. Achieving that means having as few competitive districts as possible.
competition versus common interests. That's been a real theme throughout this whole redistricting process, and we're hearing it again with the new staff map that was just released. Yes, under that map, you have one real toss-up district, which is the new 8th Congressional District. That would be um, competitive because it's a mashup of liberal Denver suburbs with conservative Will County, including a big piece of Greeley. The new map also has two districts that would be pretty close. So they lean to the right or the left, but could probably go either way, depending upon the political year and depending upon the candidates and who is moving in and out of that district. Yeah, that's correct. One is the proposal for a Southern district, which would lean Republican, and the other is the redrawn 7th Congressional District, which is a mix of a few conservative mountain counties and a few purple mountain counties, with Jefferson County's growing blue hue. Something that's interesting to note, and that we heard in Andy's story, and we've uncovered that in our reporting too, Caitlin, was this real concern from Latino groups that the commission was going to sacrifice their interests or their community of interest in order to create competitive districts or more competitive districts. Instead, this latest map is arguably more competitive, but does a lot of the things some of the Latino groups were asking for. Yeah, the commission staff does seem to have threaded the needle, but I imagine there may be some people listening who are probably a bit surprised to hear us call this a competitive map when more than half the seats will be held by one party or the other. And I will say this, one person I spoke with said, you know, competitiveness might not be the right lens to be looking through this. What you really want is a district that is responsive, responsive to political changes, responsive to shifting populations. But that brings us, I think, back to Andy's reporting, because after looking into the political science arguments around whether competition should be a priority for our politics or not, he found he had something else on his mind. So maybe the real question is, has the commission done a fair job of picking a map that balances all those competing and sometimes even contradictory ideas? There's more ways to draw, you know, a set of uh, congressional districts in Colorado than there are atoms in the universe. And it's not even close. That's Corey McCartan, a Ph.D. student in statistics at Harvard. And he teamed up with another student, Chris Kenny, to try to get a grip on some of those possibilities. What they did was really interesting. They set up an algorithm that would draw different maps that could satisfy some of Colorado's rules. And they came up with 3,000 of them, 3,000 of those atoms in the universe. In the olden days, uh, seven years ago, about, uh, <laughs> this would have probably taken a few weeks on a supercomputer type cluster setup. But with an algorithm that McCartan developed, it took about an hour on a laptop. And so, yeah, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, this would have been basically impossible to do in any way, shape, or form. So when they did this analysis on the initial map from June, they found that their computer-generated alternate reality maps tended to be about as competitive as the actual draft map from the commission. Probably made it even more competitive if they wanted, or they, they could have made it less, but they came down sort of right in the middle of what you'd expect, even without trying very hard. This approach that McCartan and Kenny used is a great example of how technology is reshaping the redistricting process. To tie it all together, I talked with one more person. Wendy Cho is a professor of political science, statistics, mathematics, computer science, Asian American studies, and law at the University of Illinois. She's done pioneering work on this kind of simulation-based approach to redistricting. And she thinks that computational analysis will make the trade-offs involved in drawing different maps much more transparent. 
But she says that the technology will only take us so far. So there are all these things that humans have to decide. Like, what does it mean to be fair? Whose interests are we going to trade off of somebody else's interest? Right? Because it's, it's always trade-off. It's, uh, it's zero-sum in redistricting. You put someone here, you put someone there. It's, uh, that changes the outcome. It changes you know, what happens for any particular person or, or even district. Computers can tell us increasingly whether a map is more competitive or more biased or less compact or less contiguous than it could be. But the most important decisions about how to balance those contrasting values, they still have to be made by humans. One of Cho's biggest questions is whether independent commissions like Colorado's will improve that human element. We very much need the humans. We very much need, you know, human deliberation in the process. Computers don't don't fix that. Um, Computers never fix humans, actually. All this is to say that there really is no perfect map. The commission's decisions ultimately will favor one priority or another. They're nearing the end of their work now. Colorado will feel the effects of all those choices for the next 10 years. Interestingly, some of the concerns we've heard about the maps haven't centered around the competitive districts. We've also heard people upset about certain districts that would be considered pretty safe. Yeah, there has been a lot of angst about putting, for example, Fort Collins together with most of Weld County in the safely Republican 4th District, or putting conservative Northwest Colorado in with Boulder in the strongly Democratic 2nd District. And I think this goes to something we hear a lot from voters. Yes, they want competition, but they also want to be in a district that votes like them. I I think that's exactly right. And another question is, if you are in a district that's more evenly split politically, How will it impact the types of candidates who run for office, or does it not have a huge impact? So we'll be following that for sure. And this redistricting process still does have a lot of twists and turns ahead. We're not across the finish line yet. Ben to Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kim with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Just an incredible season on redistricting, and you can subscribe in all the usual platforms as well as CPR.org. We'll be right back with the movie recommendations that'll put you on the bleeding edge of cinema. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I hope that you get news that tells you, hey, this is what my elected representative is doing in D.C. and I needed to know that. Or, wow, that's interesting. (laughs) I didn't know that my elected representative was doing this. Public affairs reporter Caitlin Kim, based in Washington, D.C. You send them there to represent your district or the state of Colorado, and ultimately you. What are they doing in your name? I think this is all information you need to know, and I hope my reporting helps provide some of that. Listen for the work of the CPR Newsroom every day here on CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some movie recommendations now that you should put a lot of stock in because they come from our arts reporter, Monica Castillo, the biggest film buff I know. And she is full of inspiration after returning from the Telluride Film Festival. I asked her for a little background first. Monica, tell us a bit about the festival's history and why Hollywood treks to the Rockies almost every fall. Sure. Originally, the Telluride Film Festival started as a small gathering of film fans in Colorado. It's since grown into a big deal in Hollywood because it takes place in between the Venice Film Festival and the Toronto International Film Festival. These three events are typically where studios and distributors try to get their Oscar contenders to premiere so that they get a lot of attention and they're fresh in the minds of awards voters. Since about the late 2000s, Telluride has been a launchpad for Oscar hopefuls. 
and even some movies like Slumdog Millionaire have gone on to win Best Picture. Now, Telluride was back this year after being cancelled last year because of the pandemic. Why did they put such a priority on returning to in-person? They really wanted it to be face-to-face this year. And when they announced it, they became one of the first major film festivals in the U.S. to return to an all-person event, meaning they had no virtual component. But organizers wanted people to be safe, too. They required every attendee to be vaccinated, to take a test to claim your badge, and to keep masks on inside the theater. That way, the show could go on. What did that return look like? I think it's worth noting that the festival went on for a day longer than usual, and then they included a few more titles than they normally would. So at the heart of the event, there were 44 movies to see in that short amount of time, which sadly means there's a lot I missed out on. But overall, it felt great to be back in theaters, watching movies with an audience, listening to directors and stars talk about their new film. A number of the ones I watched were made in the pandemic, so folks talked about what it was like to make movies in this weird new era. Yeah, so what were some of those pandemic movie-making hacks? So for one movie that had a multi-generational cast, they required mandatory testing for the cast and crew. Another movie filmed in New Zealand instead of its setting of Montana for safety. Looking ahead to this award season, what are some of the movies we'll hear a lot more about? I think Ronaldo Marcus's Green, King Richard, got a lot of attention at the festival. It's a crowd-pleasing sports movie about the father of tennis players Venus and Serena Williams, and he's played by Will Smith. I think it's going to get a lot of attention because of the talent involved, but it's also the story of a dad who wouldn't stop trying to get opportunities for his two daughters. So there's a lot of emotional notes in the movie. The next one I think we're going to hear a lot about is Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. It's a Western starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. It's a big, serious drama with some thriller elements. The acting is superb, and Campion is a master storyteller. Telluride gave her a tribute for works like The Piano, Bright Star, and Top of the Lake. I think we'll hear about this one for a while. Again, The Power of the Dog and King Richard. What else should we look for in theaters and if folks are more comfortable streaming at home? There were quite a few documentaries at this year's Telluride, including Todd Haynes' film on the Velvet Underground. You might know Haynes' name from movies like Carol and the Bob Dylan movie I'm Not There, so he extends that visually rich style to a documentary. But he also takes a very smart approach to explaining the band's evolution and the cultural and artistic influences that shaped them. One documentary I was really impressed with won't likely make it to the Oscars, but it's a movie that'll stick with you for a long time, and that's Robert Greene's Procession. He collaborated with six men who survived sexual abuse by Catholic priests and worked with them and a drama therapist to create scenes to process their trauma. Five of the six survivors were at Telluride, and I spoke with Greene about what that was like having them there. This is the opposite of being made silent. It's the opposite of being invisible. It's the opposite of being told that you're st- you can't share your story. It's the opposite of being told that you should be ashamed of who what happened to you. They stood up there and it was minutes long, full applause, and they took it in, and it I'll, you know it's a moment I'll never forget. Really powerful and and healing. I hope too. Monica, lastly, did you have a favorite among the films you saw? I think Kenneth Branagh's Belfast might be my favorite of the bunch. It's a story of a young boy growing up in Northern Ireland just as the violence of the late 60s between Protestants and Catholics reached new heights. So it's a little boy trying to understand intolerance and the family drama he's becoming more aware of. Belfast. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Monica. Thanks, Ryan. 
CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo with some of the films to watch and keep an eye on out of the Telluride Film Festival. Finally today, we remember a celebrated figure in folk and country music, Nancy Griffith, the Texas-born singer-songwriter known for her crystalline voice and storytelling chops, died in August. She was 68. Griffith's star rose in late 1980s, including here in Colorado. Her most memorable gigs over the years were at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Author and historian G. Brown of the Colorado Music Experience. Her first performance at Telluride was 1987. They put her on at night, just her and her bass player, no band. And she later said that it was so cold on stage that her glass of water had a layer of ice forming in it. Wowed the crowd. She was always an engaging performer. Her voice was so clear and honest is the word I would use. He was standing by the highway with a sign that just said mother when he heard a driver come in about a half a mile away. So he held the sign up higher where no decent soul could miss it. It was 10 degrees of colder down by Boulder Dam that day. He was raised up in Milwaukee, though he never was that famous. He was just a road musician to the taverns he would go. Singing songs about the rambling, part of loving girls and gambling. How the world fell on his shoulders back in Boulder, I don't know. Singer-songwriter Nancy Griffith, longtime performer at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, died in August at age 68. And that's our show, with thanks to my colleagues. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.